We are in the middle of a series called In It to Win It. Uh, we've just finished a series in the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians, we, ha- we had the joy of looking at um, 1 to 3 and the, the glories of the gospel and then the joys of looking at, at 4 to 6 and looking at how the gospel is applied to our life. And so we are a church plan. If you uh, just visiting this morning, a bit of background, we've been meeting for about a year. And as a church plant, we, as I said, we've been going through Ephesians and had the joy of, as a church, just learning and looking at the gospel and, and, and intentionally applying those truths in the way that we care for one another. And coming off the back of Ephesians, we thought it would be good as a church to be doing this series called In It to Win It, where really we, we don't want to be a church that just loves each other. We want to be a church that loves the people around us, that loves our community. And really that means taking the gospel to those in our community. Well, this morning uh, with our series In It to Win It, we come to um, looking at really weapons for the mission. And so what we're looking at this morning is how the gospel is a weapon for the mission. So we're going to turn to Romans 1. and In a moment I'm going to read, but before I go there, I'm just going to pray for us. We need God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for church this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as a body of believers, as a community of people who have come to sit under your word. We ask that you would just move powerfully. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate our minds to these glorious truths this morning? Amen. Growing up, I played a fair bit of soccer and I've been in many different teams. And I remember one particular team where it was different to all the rest. So some of the teams that I played in, we might have been uh, a losing team. (laughs) But there was one particular team that I played in that wasn't so much a losing team. We did well. We lost games. But even in the games that we were losing, we had incredible confidence. And I think if I put my finger on where that confidence came from, it came from the presence of one particular player. His name was Pete, and Pete was an incredibly good player, very gifted, went on a fair way in his own soccer career. And as a team, we could find ourselves two, three goals already scored against us, and normally I would have lacked a lot of confidence for us to have any hope of winning. But in this particular team, we were always confident. It didn't matter how bad things got. It didn't matter how much we were the underdogs. Knowing that we had Pete changed our perspective and gave us hope, if you like. And we could be confident. As we come to this morning and considering weapons for the mission, and in particular the gospel, I think as I, as I go and make friends with people who don't know Jesus, I can do that. As I seek to grow in living a life that might model to others the gospel. I think, look, I'm growing in that. But I lack confidence in actually sharing and proclaiming the gospel. I lack confidence, if I'm honest. I can remember and recall times, even just a few months ago, sitting in the car with a friend of mine who I've been praying for and even knew that this moment was coming. And I'm sitting in the car thinking, right, here we go. This is a chance to proclaim the glorious truths, the good news to him. And I lacked confidence and chickened out. Maybe you can relate. 
Well, this morning I want us to consider Paul and, and how Paul did not lack confidence. In fact, Paul was confident in proclaiming the gospel because the gospel was the power of God to save. Paul didn't lack confidence because the gospel was the power of God to save. We're going to read this passage in a moment and and in some ways what Paul's doing is building an argument for the Romans that they might also, like him, be confident in sharing this gospel, this power of God to say that they could find themselves confident. And what Paul's doing in building this argument is it's, it's almost like he's engaged in a conversation with my four-year-old daughter, Talitha. Because Talitha's at that age where she loves asking the question, why? So if I'm going to the shops, why? Well, <laughs> daddy needs to get a coffee. Why? Well, daddy's got an addiction. Why? Well, that's a long story. But that's kind of what's going on with this. As we read Romans, as we start, we'll start in verse uh, uh, 15. After each sentence, as if Paul must have had his imaginary Talitha sitting there asking him why after each sentence and allowing the argument to build upon each sentence. So I'm going to read it, but I want you to be your, do your part. So you are going to do your best four-year-old why. When I point to you, I want you to, uh, to, to respond to me with your best why. All right? We've all heard the toddler asking why. Are you ready? Can you do this? Are we alert? Are we awake? You've had your coffee. All right? Verse 15. Paul says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's writing that we can have confidence to share the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. And so as we consider this argument, I want to do what we just did. Consider each sentence and then ask why. So that we too can get to that same point as Paul, that we wouldn't lack confidence, that we wouldn't be ashamed, but we too would find ourselves in the car with our friend and speak the gospel with confidence in the gospel because it's powerful to save, friends. So the first thing I want us to consider, Paul says, verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This word eager in the Greek is literally to be single-minded. Paul is single-minded about proclaiming the gospel. Paul enters a conversation single-minded, wanting to share the good news, euangelion, the good news, great news that he himself is aware of. I want to know, I want to ask the question, if you were given a blank canvas and I said, right, I am blank canvas about the gospel, how would you fill that in? If, if I asked you that yesterday morning and you were honest with your answer, how would you fill that in? If you were writing Romans 15, I am a little bit tired of the gospel. I am, to be honest, not really that keen to share the gospel. I am... How would you share that? How would you, 
How would you fill in that blank? I am affected by the gospel. Single-minded. Paul is eager. He is single-minded. He is a man who thinks deeply about the gospel and therefore feels deeply for his saviour. And so as he approaches everyone and anyone, he's single-minded about the gospel. He's a man who is affected. So as we consider weapons for mission, the weapon must first be a weapon that affects us. It must first be a weapon that, that has pierced my heart, that I am truly affected by the gospel, that I see this euangelion as good news, great news for me. I've had times in my life where I've had the opportunity to proclaim other news that I consider great. I'm a father of three kids. And for me, every time that I've been able to take that news that the child has been born and go out and tell my friend, family or friends or post it on Facebook, for me, it is, it is with joy and excitement. And, and to be honest, I'm not thinking about anything else. I am single-minded. Ponder this then, if with that good news, if you saw a dad coming out to share that a child had just been born and he was unaffected, yeah, it was, oh, it's a, I think it's a boy, I'll, I'll go check. <laughs> Yay, we're going to call him uh, Parker, I guess. That, would, would you really think that that's good news, just in the manner, in the way that they hold themselves, in the way that they share uh, they're distracted. No, I want to be like Paul, who is single-minded. And when I see good news, it's good news for me. It excites me first. And so I am eager, single-minded, to proclaim that good news to everyone because it truly is, friends. You and Gellion, it is good news. It is great news. So Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel. Why? Well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. I'm eager to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Perhaps you think, well, it's a little bit easier for you, Paul. It was easier for you back then, wasn't it? Uh-uh, you just need to have a glance at Acts. And if Paul isn't causing a revival, he's causing a riot. Paul knows what it is to encounter people that, that literally are telling him that his gospel, 1 Corinthians 1.18, is foolish. He's heard the words. He's heard the people look at him and say, are you serious? Do you seriously believe that? That's foolish. Well, for other people, 1 Corinthians 1.23, it's a stumbling block. Paul is not... Uh, uh, he's aware of what it is, perhaps, even to, to be tempted to be ashamed. Now, how can he not say, I'm not ashamed, if he hasn't experienced what it is to be tempted to be ashamed? He's living, he was living in a world where people would have thought that he was shameful. In fact, I was going back through doing some study this week, and uh, in my, one of my church history books, I found and came across and was reminded of some early uh, graffiti that they found on a cave in the first few centuries of Christianity mocking a Christian man called Aleximenos. And the, the picture on the, on the cave is a picture of Aleximenos worshipping his God. And that's what the, the graffiti says in Greek. Aleximenos worships his, his God. Why is it mocking? 
Because Aleximenos is worshipping a crucified donkey. In essence, these people are mocking this man, saying, you, you worship a donkey's religion, Aleximenos. It's a donkey's religion. It's foolish. Paul is aware that, that our world is going to come at us and think that this gospel is foolish. And yet Paul is able to say that he is not ashamed. That he is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why, Paul? Why are you not ashamed? Why are you eager to preach and not ashamed of the gospel, Paul? Well, verse 16 continues, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And you can see the power of God all around us. You can see the power of God in a volcano erupting. You can can stare at the sun, and if you stare long enough, uh, it'll actually damage your eyes permanently, such as the power of the sun. Uh, If if you look at Andrew Lung, the the stored-up energy in that man is powerful. (laughs) There is power all around us, right? I I did a little bit of looking into powerful waves. And you remember the Boxing Day tsunamis? The, the power of such waves caused damage. I think it was $9.9 billion of infrastructure from these waves. Such is the power that you can see. And yet these things are not labelled the definitive power of God. The Gospel, friends, is the power of God. The Gospel is the power of God. So Paul can be confident, eager even, not ashamed, because what he has, his weapon for mission, is the very power of God. And we need a powerful weapon for an impossible task. See, as we read Romans, as we've already heard and been made aware of, the task of mission is impossible for you and I, isn't it? As I look at my friends who don't know Jesus, it is impossible for me to open their eyes and their hearts. See, as I see and read Romans, Romans 3, all have sinned and have rejected God. They don't even seek God. The theological term is depravity. And as we've been reminded again, Ephesians 2, Paul later on in Ephesians, right into the Ephesus church, says it's as if sinners are dead in their sin unable to respond. Now, I'll play a little bit of guitar in my time. When I pick up the guitar and start playing again, I start getting calloused fingers. My finger, the skin on my fingers uh, over time, layer upon layer, is actually dead skin that just remains there. And it actually makes it hard to even feel the guitar, feel through the dead skin. Our hearts, if you like, become callous. We look at God and we say, no, you're not God. We look at God and we devalue him and we say, no, you're not really worth much. Uh, Other things are more worthy of my attention and my praise to be labelled my God even. 
and, and our hearts are hardened and not willing, do not want God. I don't even want to respond to God. And the biblical word for that, as I said, is depravity. It is the sense that no one will seek God because we, in our sin, will never prefer God. We prefer anything but. We are running away from God. And so the task for mission is impossible for me to bring them back. They are dead in their sins. And such an impossible task, therefore, needs a powerful weapon. A a dynamite, powerful weapon for such a task. For what is impossible with man is made possible with the power of God. Consider... um, Consider even if I were to take this rope. And let's say the task was for this one bit of rope to become two. I can't do that. I mean, I'm pretty strong, humble as well. But I can't, I can't do that. I can't make this rope. If I look at this rope, I, can't, I'm, I could try lots of different techniques, right? I could put my trust in lots of different methods. Maybe I could um, draw six pictures, great pictures of of how eventually one rope becomes two ropes and at the end, say, you've got two choices. Or I could um, explain to the rope the history of ropes becoming two and how the ones that have made the choice to become two have, have, have made, uh, really enjoyed their life and how it's so much better for ropes to become two. I could share my own story of how I've experienced ropes becoming two. Um, <laughs> I could try and manipulate it even, and so at least it looks like two. And so it'll spend its rest of its life looking like two pieces and fooling everyone that it's two pieces when it's really still one. But really, I can't do anything. All my methods, though they're not bad, and they might be a means, but they uh, lack the power in and of themselves to actually make this rope become two. I need a powerful weapon. I need a tool don't I? And Paul says that the gospel of God is that tool to do that which I cannot do. It'd be awkward if that didn't work. <laughs> the gospel is what does what you and I cannot do. The, the mission of looking at someone who does not know God, does not even want to know God, has has exchanged the truth for a lie, is dead in their sin, as I sit in the car and try and share the gospel, it is impossible for me, for me, to make that person a Christian. I can't. But the power of God can break open a hardened heart. The power of God proclaimed in the gospel can open an eye to see that the one that they have devalued is the most valuable the most glorious being. And that, friends, is the power of God that can do that work and the power of God only. And it might come through those methods. But do not put your trust in the method. Put your trust in the power of God for this mission. Paul is confident as he takes the gospel to his friends because it's the power of God to save. Why? Why is it that that is the thing that is the power of God? Why is it that that can save? Why? Verse 17, Paul, 
in his conversation with Talitha, responds, For in it, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The first word there that I want to draw upon as Paul's argument is building is revealed. Something that is, has been hidden. The gospel is what makes it revealed. Something that, that someone might be even deprived from seeing is made able to see, revealed. The gospel is the tool, is the means, the final means of making someone be able to see this wonderful revelation. Apart from the gospel, no one will know or see or enjoy. The gospel reveals. And what does it reveal? It reveals that God can be right in declaring someone who is unclean, clean. What? It declares and reveals that God can be right in looking at me, a sinner, and declaring forgiven. What? Are you serious? Imagine the first readers reading this. Reading this letter from Paul. You don't have to go there, but I'm just going to read a proverb that perhaps they would have had ringing in their ears as they considered the righteousness of God. Proverbs 17 verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the wicked. The Bible tells me that I'm a wicked sinner. And yet the gospel says that God can be right in justifying me, a wicked sinner. How incredible is that? How? How can that be? How can God be right in looking at me who is unclean and saying clean? How can God be right in looking at me and saying unworthy, who is unworthy, and then declaring me no, worthy to enter my presence? A holy God. How? 2 Corinthians 5 explains it well. Really, this is what the gospel is, friends. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him, him that is Jesus, his son, God, came and became one of us that he might live as the perfect life on our behalf, that he might represent us. God made him who knew no sin so that in him uh, to be... Sorry, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How can God be right in justifying the wicked? Because on my behalf, God became a man, a human to represent humanity. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin. My sin was condemned in him, my representative. So that I've been judged and my judgment was taken upon him, transferred from me onto the cross, onto Jesus. It's, again, the theological term for this. <laughs> Actually, I can't remember. Imputation. It's, it's a word for swapping, if you like, that, 
that my sin was placed on him and his righteousness was placed on me. How can God be right? That's how, friends. The greatest swap story you'll ever hear that me, a wicked sinner, has, has a righteous representative on my behalf who actually died in my place. How powerful is that? How good is that news? That, that I, who dare not enter the presence of a holy God, can now enter the presence of God completely washed and cleansed and forgiven because of Jesus, not because of anything I did that you too can share in that good news. That you too can look to Jesus, your Saviour. That God can be right in declaring you and I forgiven because of Jesus. Dying in my place, in your place. And that, friends, is where my confidence lies. Is where Paul's confidence lies. For it is in that that wonderful, powerful truth that 2,000 years ago, a powerful act happened in history that now has ripples effects, that as we proclaim and speak it in hearing and believing, people might come to know their, power, their sinful hearts, their hardened hearts, broken open to the revelation that God loves them and sent his son to die for them. Uh, a year ago even, Dave shared a story about sticky bombs in World War II where they, they would take dynamite and shove it into socks and then they'd cover it in tar and they'd go up to tanks, tanks that otherwise were hard to break through and break down. And they'd take these sticky bombs and they'd whack it on the side of the tank and then wait for a booming effect. And the outer of the tank would be crippled allowing them to actually attack the tank, allowing it to be accessible. The gospel, if you like, is this sticky bomb that is powerful, that can break open a hardened heart to God. But it comes through the proclamation of the word, the proclamation of this wonderful news that Christ died for us. And so we can be confident, friends. We don't have to lack confidence. We can be confident in this mission. Because it's the power of God that is at work. And it might take time. Sometimes the sticky bombs wouldn't go off straight away. Sometimes they might think, okay, we better run and put another one on there and another one. It can take time. But in God's kindness, he will take the spoken word of the gospel and can open hearts that are hardened, harder than a tank even. We can be confident in the gospel because it's the power of God. I want to just consider a couple of temptations that might rise as we consider this truth. Some of the temptations that I think arise for me anyway. The first temptation that I think as I consider taking this weapon, the gospel, out into the mission is this sense that I think I come across people and I think, you know what, too hard. And I can be tempted to put people in the too hard basket so I can be tempted to perhaps, uh, maybe I'm sitting on a train and on gets a, a businessman in his power suit and I'll be like, how am I ever going to 
share the gospel. You know what? Even if I did share the gospel, they're probably so consumed in their business world and then come the weekend, they're probably too busy to even consider the possibility of coming to church one day. Too hard. Or maybe I'll be at the shops and I'll um, strike up a conversation with, a, with someone and find out that they're a Muslim uh, and, and for me, bang, into the too hard basket. How, how can they ever respond to the gospel, right? That's too hard. My scope has become narrow, if you like, for those that, that are familiar with a gun and a rifle scope. Perhaps for me, I, I, I too easily can be tempted to look for people who look just like me and are pretty close to becoming a Christian anyway. And I'll happily share the gospel with them. And I mean, they're pretty much living the same life anyway. But Paul's scope was able to adjust near, far. Didn't matter. His scope was anyone and everyone, Greek and barbarian, wise and foolish, Jew and Greek. Paul saw that the gospel was powerful to save everyone and anyone. You can be confident because it's the power of God. It's not dependent on your method though that might be a helpful tool, it's God and his gospel that is the power to change and save. And its scope is everyone and anyone. I think for me, I write people off and when I do that, it's helpful to reflect on others in my life who have come across who perhaps might have been the people that I would have written off. So we had a friend, I used to live in Nambucca Heads, and we've got a friend up at Nambucca who, her name's Tracy. And Tracy used to be a drug dealer, one of the, was involved with some of the biggest drug dealers in Canberra. She moved to Nambucca to kind of get away from it. Um, Tracy was uh, in a very committed, serious lesbian relationship. Tracy um, had... Um, been arrested and had a criminal record for assault, even uh, at times had put a woman in hospital. Um, Tracy was the kind of lady that if I met, gosh no, too hard for me, too hard basket. Tracy got sick and uh, had to get a blood test and went to get a blood test and another friend of ours, Marie, was there. And um, Marie proclaimed the power of God to her and prayed for her. Three months later, Tracy walked into church. And if you met Tracy now, she is radically transformed by the gospel. And that renews my faith, thinking, yeah, there's someone who I would probably have written off, and yet the power of God can save anyone. Look at Paul. Paul was the kind of man, as you read through Acts, who was, was actually killing Christians, was so deeply into his religion that there was no chance you would have written him off to become a follower of Jesus. And here he is, a Christian, sharing and exhorting others to take this wonderful message. Consider your life and my life. Apart from the gospel, where would you be? Doesn't that renew your faith? That the power of God, the gospel, has saved me, even me has broken open my heart that I can see and testify that, yes, Jesus is Lord. 
Doesn't that renew your faith? That, that boom, the gospel has broken open even my heart, even Paul's heart, even Tracy's heart. You know what? Let's go. Let's be confident. Let's go forth and proclaim the gospel because it's powerful. Temptation number two that I can find as I consider proclaiming the gospel and knowing it is powerful, I can still be tempted in a conversation to change it. I can be tempted to change the gospel. Uh, the wrong message can get you in a lot of trouble, right? I remember when I was in Nambucca Heads again, I had a pastor who I rang up and uh, he wasn't there, so I was, it went through to his answering machine. And for some weird reason, I picked up a magazine and pretended that I was the editor of this magazine. The briefing was the magazine, if you know it. And it was a Christian magazine, and so I pretended that I was, I was the editor of this Christian magazine, leaving a message. I wanted to get in contact with him to do an article on him uh, and parish ministry in countries, country churches. And uh, some silly reason, I left the real number. And, uh, of course, he's actually then followed up on this wrong message and rung the real number, and they had no idea, and I made him look bad. The wrong message can get you in trouble. <laughs> Why would you change the message when we have such a glorious and good message to give to our friends? Why would you change the message when the author of this gospel is God? When he says that the, his power lies within this gospel. So why would you change it? Why would you water it down? Love your friend enough to share the true gospel. The other temptation I guess I can face is uh, I can be tempted in sharing the gospel. So if I do finally have the confidence to share the gospel, I can be tempted to launch into a, a, a nice big monologue. I want to encourage us to be open to dialogue, not monologue. Again, I can remember times when I was, uh, examples when I went to order a, a um, drive through Macca's and the girl goes, how are you going today? And I just took that, that as an opportunity, a window's open, right, for me to share the gospel with her. I'll tell you how I'm going. I am doing so much better than I deserve because, and you know what, that's Look, maybe God can, well, God can use that. But I think we ought to be open to dialogue. Don't feel like you have to launch into your pre-prepared five-minute sermon which explains each and every detail. Look, you, you want to share the gospel, but be open to conversations, be open to questions, right? Don't force your sermon onto them. I think as Australians, we love underdogs, don't we? We love, I think we even love the fact that as you consider um, the rest of the world thinks that the, the sandwich spread that we love, the rest of the world thinks tastes like vomit. And we kind of think that's funny, but we love it. Uh, as Australians, we watch any sport uh, and if we find out that the team that we're watching has actually been on a good winning streak, something in us kind of wants to back the other guys, right? And see the other guys win. Uh, consider... Um, the 2000 Olympics. I don't know if you can remember Eric the Eel, this man from Equatorial Guinea who's got up onto the platform and everyone else in his heat in the 100 metre freestyle was disqualified for false starting. 
And so Eric the eel, or Eric, I can't remember his surname, Eric has dived in. And I'm not even sure he'd ever, if he'd ever swum 100 metres before, and he probably swam it slower than most people in this room would do. He was struggling, and yet Australia loved him and was backing and gunning for him to go on and go further. We loved him. We love the underdog, right? I think that, for me, the biggest story of an underdog is when I think of the America's Cup. And for Australia, we, we, we look at that and we think, yeah, we were the underdogs. See, the story is 132 years America had won. And then in 1983, Australia too, with its boxing kangaroo sails, stepped up to take them on. Race one, America wins. Race two, America wins. Man, we're the underdogs. Race three, America wins. Race four, Australia 2 gets up and wins. Race five, Australia 2 gets up and wins. Race six, Australia 2 gets up and wins. Best of seven, it comes down to the final race. All of Australia is watching in that morning. Even Bob Hawke. And as they enter that race, Australia 2 does the unthinkable, the impossible even, against all odds. Australia 2 wins. And the rest of the world would have been asking, how? How did that happen? How did such a radically uh, impossible task come to be that they were able to win? How? Australia had a secret weapon. Their secret weapon was revealed when they finally lifted the boat up and you could see that they had a winged keel which gave them a superior advantage in speed in most conditions. The great underdog against facing perhaps an impossible task had a secret weapon that could overcome and win. Friends, as we consider what is perhaps an impossible task for you and I, as we take this gospel to brandish it amongst our community, as we take the gospel to share it with those who don't know Jesus, as we feel perhaps like we're the underdogs, I want you to rise up and like a good Australian, back yourself. Because you have a secret weapon. The gospel is the power of God to save anyone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this glorious gospel, this glorious truth that we have. We thank you that it is powerful and it is powerful to save sinners, even us. Lord, we thank you that as we consider and ponder the gospel this morning, that we can be renewed in our confidence to share and proclaim the good news to those who don't believe yet. May you help us and enable us to be confident and speaking and proclaiming this good news. Amen.